Today we have another episode of Science and Storytelling, a GSA podcast series on aging. On this episode of Science and Storytelling, we'll be talking about health disparities among older adults of color. We're excited to be joined by Dr. Tamara Baker, professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and the current chair of GSA's Behavioral and Social Sciences section. In the face of population aging, she wants to find ways to shape social policies and programs to optimally engage the growing human capital of the older population. Her research centers on pain management, health outcomes and behaviors, and domains of health disparities and social determinants of health among diverse race and marginalized populations. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Baker. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Appreciate it. So first of all, I want to get a little background on you and know how you became interested in the field of aging. That's a great question. And everyone has a story. So, you know, I'm glad that you're asking how I became interested in aging. When I was in high school, actually, my parents told me, you have to do something. You're not going to sit around the house all day over the summer and not do anything. You know, my sister was working in retail and my brother was working at a fast food restaurant. And I thought I could just sit at home and just have a great summer vacation, but that was not the case. So I didn't want to do retail. I didn't want to work in fast food. And ironically enough, there was a nursing home that was within walking distance of my house. And I would pass it all the time going to school. So my parents said, well, you can volunteer there. And I ended up volunteering. Of course, I worked in the activities department and it was a life-changing experience. And that's really when, even at 16, I said, this is what I want to do. I wanted to work with older adults. I wasn't sure in what capacity But I knew that I had found my passion. And I do believe that even at such a young age, that was my calling in working with with that particular population. And as I got older, you know, I worked with children. I was a substitute teacher. And I recognized very clearly that I did not want to work with, with children or adolescents. So I I stuck with it and I'm glad I I I did. And it's been very lucrative. And it's also being, it's been a very good experience for me. That's great. So once you decided on aging in your career as a researcher and scientist, what caused you to focus on health disparities specifically? My research has, has primarily focused on pain management in older adults And one of the reasons that I got into that specific area was because my mother, she was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in her mid thirties, which is, you may know it's, it's an extremely painful medical condition. And I saw throughout the years, all that she went through in dealing with that diagnosis. And sometimes I would go to doctor's visits with her and I just saw how she was treated. Sometimes some treated her very well. And others, not so much. And I was thinking to myself, you know, this isn't fair. Why are you being treated this way? You're a highly educated Black woman. I'm and then you mentioned that because on an audio platform, people might not know that you're Black and your mother is Black. So yeah. that is something to know as we speak about this topic. And, and, and I think it's really important because... Um, Again, I, I don't think that people understand that sometimes personal stories can guide your research, can guide your mm-hmm. work, and, and guide who you are as a scientist and as a scholar. And being, you know, an African American female, I, I've had my my trials in, in doing this type of work. 
And again, you know, despite the personal stories, you know, it's really important for others to recognize that people are not always treated fairly. And, and, you know, we have to do what we can, you know, as academics in our scholarly work to make sure that people are treated fairly. And pain is no exception. At one point or another, we've all experienced it, um, whether it's acute and or chronic. And again, I just want to make sure that we are all treated fairly. And that's really, you know, stemming from my mother, but then also personal experiences, but then understanding that we still have a long way to go when it comes to understanding disparities in pain management, which is one of the reasons why I've I've stayed um, with that particular area of focus. Gotcha. I can definitely relate as a nurse practitioner in geriatric primary care who saw many patients of lower socioeconomic status who also were marginalized populations. I went to do a PhD now because I saw that discrimination and the difference of treatment was affecting people's outcomes, right? And it was not intentional by anyone particularly, but the systems in place just had a side effect of these health disparities. Absolutely. So that was your storytelling. Now let's talk about the science. So you said you you are interested in pain in your work and how health disparities is related to pain management. So could you give us an example of how a research finding has translated into practical use or how you've been able to disseminate that knowledge and if anyone has told you they've changed their practice as a result? That's, a, that's an excellent question. And, you know, again, my research focuses on addressing, you know, behavioral and social implications of pain and pain management specifically among older adults from diverse race and ethnic groups, but primarily older African-Americans. And with my research, I try and have done for a number of years, you know, to make sure that pain complaints are heard and that they're not minimized. You know, this could be from the perspective of a primary care provider to a family member or even a friend. And unfortunately for many older adults, you know, pain is seen as something that is a normal part of aging. And unfortunately, you know, in having that attitude, it's not adequately managed or even acknowledged. So we as academics and clinicians, you know, what we need to do is to educate the public about chronic pain and the pain experience and to make sure that everyone is treated fairly, but more importantly, not equating age with pain. Mm. Uh, or being older with pain and recognizing that everyone has the right to have their pain adequately treated. But then also I think what's extremely important is to recognize that pain, for example, should not be ignored regardless of someone's age or their gender or sex or economic status or race or any other identifying information. And Specifically, when we focus on disparities and pain management in particular, there are lots of practical implications that can come from that. And we want to make sure that our scholarly work not only is housed within the academic environment, but that it also reaches the community. But I think what's also very important is recognizing that advocacy it is critical as well. And I don't think a lot of us recognize that our work can have such a powerful impact when it comes to understanding not only disparities, but for, you know, from my perspective, disparities um, in pain management. 
So I always tell people, regardless of the type of work that you do, you should try to be a change agent, making sure that you are fighting for those who are more marginalized, those who may not have that voice, but then in particular, make sure that everyone is treated equitably and fairly. I'm really glad you brought up that point because as someone who is a clinician and is pursuing doctoral education, I'm caught in that middle space of the theory and practice gap, the research academic side and the practical clinical side. And at least in nursing, you know, um, we have this big bridge we still need to build. Right. And so how do you feel is the best way that your work has gotten out there into the practical setting? And, you know, what advice say you would have for me as someone who hasn't published yet, but is hoping to in the near future, how do I get that out to my fellow clinicians who, who are the ones who can also be change agents? Sure. And that's a great question. I don't think there's really an easy answer for that, but not being a clinician myself, I've always struggled to find that medium in getting my work out and Mm. taking opportunities when I'm asked to interview, such as this, you know, Mm. doing podcasts or interviewing for a newspaper or a magazine or something along those lines. I jump at the opportunity because everyone is not going to pick up a journal article and, and read, but you'll have more people listening to podcasts or you have more that are reading an article online. Just making sure that when you are provided the opportunity to get the word out, to seize the moment. That's what I've always been told. Try to seize the moment, to collaborate with other people, but then to also get outside of the institutional walls, making sure that you're interacting with others in the community. Because I think that's critical. Oftentimes when we do our research, we're sitting behind a desk and we're crunching numbers and writing papers. But I think the real change is making sure that you're involved with those that you're actually doing the research on or with, making sure that you're in the community, that your work is being put out there. But then also, I think it's also really important to recognize that sometimes when we have conversations with other people, don't automatically assume that they know what you're talking about. You know, sometimes you have to really break things down and and make it to the point that everyone understands it, but that also everyone understands it. There are issues when it comes to working with older adults and recognizing that, unfortunately, we are not a society that veers becoming older. And I think debunking these ages perspectives is also a way to help us recognize that, you know, my work can be an example to others and to younger generations as well. Right. I think that's something that in our culture, we don't realize that if we're lucky, we're going to get old. Right. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and I connected with so many of my patients because I felt they had so much to teach me. You know, I could teach them about their medical issues and how to improve their health, but they taught me so many things. And that was part of why I chose to do geriatric nursing research. So now that we've established why we love this, what does the future hold for this field? And and how do those how do those of us who aspire to a career in gerontology direct our own work to best affect change? You know, it's 
That's another great question. You're asking me all of these absolutely <laughs> wonderful questions and, and I'm excited um, about this because I am so passionate about this. And when you ask, what does the future hold? Really, the sky is the limit mm-hmm. when it comes to understanding all that we can contribute to understanding our older adult population. As you mentioned before, you're lucky to become older. You are. And I ex- absolutely. And I think. With the two of us, for example, we're fully immersed in this field. And I think where there is the most hope is to educating the younger generations about gerontology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that many of us happen to fall into this field very later on, as opposed to earlier on, um, either you're in college or even in graduate school. And you're like, I never knew that gerontology existed. But I think where we really need to focus our attention on is is the younger generations, letting them know that gerontology can be a very viable field. And oftentimes, even in my classes, I teach mainly aging-related courses, of course. And I ask the students to raise your hand if you've ever taken a class in gerontology or focusing on older adults. None of the students, like out of 50 students, raised their hand. Then I asked, you know, how many of you have taken like a child development course? Everyone raised their hand. So again, that sends a certain message and letting us know what our priorities are from a societal perspective. And I think, again, as I mentioned, just reaching younger generations, letting them know that gerontology is a viable field, but then it's also a booming field considering the numbers, you know, oftentimes they think older age with their grandparents or even their parents, but I'm like, there's so much more that, that goes beyond just dealing with your grandparents or dealing with your parents. And even for my field, focusing on disparities and pain management you know, when I tell them about the type of work that I do, the science that I produce, I mean, their eyes get big. Like I never knew that this could be an area for me. So I think reaching younger generations, but then also getting the word out and and becoming involved like with a GSA type organization and, and, and letting them know that it's not just for more senior level faculty or scholars, but that anyone is welcome to to participate in the organization and produce science and and show their science and their scholarly work. So since you brought up GSA again, and I was telling you this is a podcast to commemorate the 75-year anniversary of the Gerontological Society of America, can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved and now you're the chair, the social and behavioral sciences section? What's your history with GSA and, and how have you benefited from it? I've been involved with GSA probably for 20 plus years. I first got involved when I started graduate school. And I, I will admit, I knew absolutely nothing about GSA, but my mentor was very involved with GSA. And my first year, he said, you're going to submit an abstract on the research that we're doing, that you're going to present. So I didn't feel like I had you know, a voice in that, but I'm glad I did not push against presenting. And I was a newly minted graduate student. But even with my involvement with GSA, it started while I was in graduate school, not only attending and presenting my research and my mentor's research, but I was a BSS junior rep And then I ran and I was appointed as the BSS senior rep um, with ESPO. It wasn't called ESPO back then, but it was focusing on the students and the transitional members. 
And then from there, you know, just becoming involved and being asked to serve on committees. And because GSA is my primary organization, my Mm -hmm. primary affiliation. And if I miss a year, I I feel like I'm lost um, because I've been going and attending for such a long time. And even in sitting in the audience and I would go to the BSS section, you know, luncheons and what have you and involved with that. In the back of my mind, I said, one day I want to be a chair. Of the BSS section. And I know that sounds very cheesy, but that's really how I felt. And I said, this is what I want to do. But I think also one of the main reasons why I said that I wanted to strive to become the chair is because I did not see anyone that looked like me in the years that, you know, attending the meeting and seeing uh, an African-American female serving as chair. It was far and few between, but I, I said I wanted to do something to change that. Yeah. And when I received that phone call saying that I had been nominated, oh. I was very excited. And it just let me know that the work that I had done, not only in the gerontology field, but also within GSA was being recognized because it was truly honored to even be nominated. for the BSS chair. And then once I received the second phone call saying that I had been selected as the chair, it was a very exciting moment. And then the wheels started spinning. Okay, what can I do to move GSA forward and the platform of GSA Mm -hmm. forward, but then also making it a more inclusive organization as well? I'm glad you brought that up because this past November was my first GSA conference as a first-year PhD student. And I was actually impressed by the fact that so many of the scientists presenting were outside of nursing, right? Because I am in a PhD nursing program. And so Mm -hmm. I am around nurses all the time and I read nursing research, but Mm -hmm. there were so many professions, public health, social work, epidemiology, Um, social sciences, and also what you mentioned, and I said this in our debrief with my my classmates and, and faculty, I said, you know, I was so encouraged by the fact that there is so much diversity in GSA and that you can see people that look like you that are chairs, that have leadership positions. And, you know, I don't think it's cheesy that you said that to yourself because I say that to myself. I say I had like, I can count the number of Latina professors or Latino on one hand that I've had in my education. And I want to be that person for younger people. Even if they don't become interested in gerontology, I want them to see that they can get a PhD and they can be the chair of a section at a national organization, right? Because we just need more representation. The geriatric population is also very diverse. And so they need us of similar cultural and ethnic backgrounds to be here doing the science. And so I'm really glad you brought that up because I also meant to ask you how your career has developed as a, as a woman of color in academia and you know, I've taught a little bit at the the undergraduate and graduate level. And so it's not necessarily easy. And I I don't want to say anything too negative about it. But 
it's very encouraging, you know, when, when we found out that you had agreed to be interviewed and I went to look at your bio and I saw your picture, I was like stars in my eyes. <laughs> you know, it Thank makes you. a difference. It really does. It um, does. And I, I think having that representation, and as I mentioned before, you want to see someone that looks like you. You want to see someone that has similar values as you. And, you know, that was the platform that I ran on when I was nominated um, as the BSS chair. You know, my aim and my, my goal was diversify the leadership within the organization to make sure that not only do we have more leaders of color within the organization, but also attendees, members, for example. And that's one of the things that I feel that I'm doing as the current BSS chair. You know, we presented our diversity, equity, and inclusion state. And we were one of the first sections to actually put that out. It's now on the website. And I was proud to do that with our, our leadership team, the BSS leadership team, because that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I want to make sure that the members, regardless of their identifying characteristics, that they they understand and they recognize that this is a place for them and their science. But then to also a, a place for them to network and to connect with, with others that look like them. And I think that's extremely important. Some people may minimize that. But again, being an African-American female in academia, I mean, it hasn't been easy. But there have been been some advantages, and one of the advantages that, especially when when I'm in the classroom or when I'm presenting my science, that they can see that Dr. Baker is a woman of color and that she's been very successful throughout the years. They don't see the scars, but they see that there is that representation. And as you mentioned before, there is someone there that has similar values that, you know, something that they can aspire to be that the next Dr. Baker or whomever and and know that it is possible. The sky is the limit. I mean, it's it's endless possibilities, but you have to be willing to take that step and then to also bring others along. Right. To mentor others. BSA offers a lot of opportunity for that. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing what you do as the chair of behavioral and social sciences section at GSA. Well, thank you again. And I greatly appreciate the invite. Thank you. Bye-bye. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.